0: Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation, and thy power to every one that is to come. Psalm 71, verse 18. This is the Essential Bible Studies Podcast.
1: My name is Tim Young. My name's Frank Abel. Frank, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You are a regular on our podcast. You're helping us with our essential Bible studies, but today I've asked you to come here to do something a little different. We're going to get your testimony and your reflections on your life. We do this at the end of each season, and... I wanted to talk to you because I you know you're have somebody I've looked up to throughout my life, older generation, and I've really kind of cherished a moment here like this to dig into your life and find out about you some more. It's very important in scripture to do this. I don't know about you, Frank, but I believe like there's these generational gaps. You know, you talk about generations get different names like baby boomers and Gen Xers and those kind of things. And Really does seem to be some truth to that. There's these generational gaps. But the Bible in its instruction says it's very important for us to try to bridge those gaps and for the younger generation to understand and appreciate the older generation, and vice versa, for the older generation to connect and reach out to the younger generation. And one of these verses that comes out with this perspective is in Deuteronomy. Chapter 32 and verse 7. And there, God says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will teach you. So, as a young person in the faith, it's important to reach out to this older generation, as this verse says, to learn. We have a responsibility as a younger generation, to preserve the word, what has gone on before. And we can't do that unless we understand it, and we have to be able to keep it. This energy or this influence has gone throughout the generations. There's this example of a family in the book of Jeremiah. They're called the Rechabites. They were commended because their father, many years before, had made a vow that they were to live in tents and not drink wine. And generation after generation after generation of this family followed and preserved that. And Jeremiah took this family in one of his prophecies and made an example of them say, look at this family, how dedicated and faithful they've been and something that we should do in, in our life. Maybe just if you're a young person listening to this, just kind of think about that and how you can reach out to somebody who's older, even grandmother, grandfather, very important to not let that time slip by, but to grab hold of it and just ask some of the things that I'm going to be asking you today, I guess. (laughs) But, Frank, it's also important the other way, isn't it? The older to the younger.
0: It's not easy either way, either direction. Well, it's a very important thing. I agree. And I think it's harder to do now than any other time in my life to Mm -hmm. actually reach out to children that are old enough to listen to you. And that's because there's so many things have happened that have changed. Like the world is a different world. But I tell you, Tim, I have uh, probably never learned this as much as I have by living with my grandchildren. Right. And that is really a pleasant thing to do because children don't generally just come up and ask you and... Grandparents don't tell the child when he's visiting, look, sit down here, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> it just happens. And yeah. when you're living with them, that's the way it is. It just happens. Yeah. And so the children get the benefit of how you saw it when you were their age, and and you get the benefit of looking at it through new eyes. And it is quite refreshing.
1: Right. Now that verse you read in the beginning of the podcast, Psalm 71, verse 18, I love that verse mainly because this is David in his old age. He's gray-headed and he's looking back and he's asking God not to forsake him until, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. So yeah. the thing that we're trying to pass on as an older generation, the younger generation, is just the strength of the power of God, this aspect of the truth, which is so powerful in our lives and how do you do that but through how God has affected your life and being that example and living that for the younger generation?
0: I think that's very true in the mind of an older person because, like God so often throughout his word, talks about the refining of metals. And you go through difficulty and uh, you come out purer. You go through difficulty, you come out pure again. When you get to the age of where you know uh, it's not going to be long before you die— But just because of your age, you know, you you then start thinking, well, what in life really matters? Well, this refining process has got you to the point of seeing what really matters. So there's great blessings in listening to the Bible and being able to actually tell people about the way it ought to be from the Bible's point of view. So
1: Frank, how old are you? I'm 80. You're 80 years old. You've gone through some difficult times. Remember, you had a very serious heart attack. Yeah. You just recently had a pacemaker installed. You've been diagnosed with a condition. What is that condition again called? It's
0: That condition is called amyloid cardiomyopathy. Right. If you can <laughs> pronounce it. <turn laughs> no wonder I
1: didn't remember it. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's a condition of where you're uh, I feel always a little hesitant to say this because it's spiritually uh, not a good sign, but your heart gets hard. Your heart hardens up because of a protein that's being deposited there where it just is like an iron mesh in your heart and your heart just can't be flexible. And uh, if it continues on, eventually you'll die because your heart just can no longer work. Right. I have medicine, which is trying to prevent that from getting worse, but it really can't get you back out of the trouble you've already got into. Right. Those things really do give you the time to sit on your bed and think about life like you've never thought before, especially the heart attack, because the heart attack was a total heart arrest. And I was brought in by ambulance, and uh, I got into the door on the bed, and uh, apparently they have to tell me what happened then, but yes, my heart stopped. Mm -hmm. And I had to go through um, that electronic means of putting a a shock into your body. And usually, if you're going to make it the first time, it works. And it worked. But I had no memory of anything until I woke up. And when I woke up, if they hadn't told me, I would never have known anything happened. I felt quite normal. (laughs) (laughs) And they rushed me off to another hospital to get five bypasses. (laughs) Right. You're 80 years old now.
1: So that means you were born in 1942? That's right. Yeah, that is a long time ago, just trying to think back. that was way before I was born, even. Like you said, a very uh, different time. So 1942 would put you right in the middle of World War II. Is that
0: yes, correct? So I, was. I was born right in the middle of the World War II, and so were my older brother and sister. Not in the middle, but at the beginning of it. There was only a little over two years between the three of us. So we were born all together, well, all together in that sense. But it was was a a lifelong experience of being very close to my brother and sister.
1: Right. You were born here in Ontario, right?
0: All of us. All of the children were born in Ontario. My dad was born in Toronto, so we're Canadians.
1: Oh, right. (laughs) So your older brother is Ron. Yes. Some people might know Ron, especially from a book called Rested Scripture. If They have that book. He wrote that book. Your other sister, Joan? Yes. And then you? Yes. Do you have other brothers and sisters well, besides that? Well, then seven that?
0: years later, my other brother, Bruce, was born. Oh. And then finally, my sister, Sylvia. So, we're
1: talking about Shelburne,
0: Ontario is where you grew yes. up. Yes.
1: You grew up on a farm? Yes. The, taking
0: care of livestock? Well, I tell you, there's an interesting little story behind that. Yeah. Because we stayed in Toronto until I was uh, 10 years old. At that stage, my brother and I were not getting along at all. Ron and you weren't getting Ron along? Ron and I were not getting along at all. <laughs> and uh, because trying to living, fathom
1: that, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Living right in the middle of an urban area where there's a lot of people. He had his friends and I had my friends and they were quite different. My dad got fed up with this and said, I know what to do. And he sold the place and moved to Shelburne, bought a farm. Really? Wow. It was right in the year Hazel Hurricane, 1954. Okay, yeah. And when we got there, the basement had three feet of water in it (laughs) because of the hurricane. Yeah. And fences were washed away. There were dead animals on the property. Oh, my goodness. It was quite a beginning. But it caused my brother and I to have to get along because we couldn't get to town. There were no other children in the area. And then dad said to us, well, you're the farmers because I'm going to have to go back to Toronto to work to keep you. And there was several really significant years when that happened that we learned how to get along or learned how to work together and became very best friends. Interesting. So when Dad took us to the farm, he got us an old tractor and an old horse-drawn mower. We had a few cows. We had to get the hay in the barn for the winter. I remember we had a 50-acre field, and it took us the whole summer to get that in the far- in the barn with the equipment that he gave us and our... <laughs> Did you have a tractor at least? We had a tractor, (laughs) but the mower was a horse-drawn mower, which worked at a much slower pace. Yeah. And when you're going around the field cutting the hay, you had to stop very frequently to put some grease on it or else it would burn up. So it took a long time.
1: Tell me a little bit about your parents then, because that seems like a very drastic (laughs) move or something to do if you're having troubles with your family. Did you ever resent your father for moving you like that? No, I
0: did not. I loved the farm. Oh, okay. And Ron loved it, too. Well so oh, we he felt we, the same, yeah. We fell in love with the farm and oh, gave up all our Toronto experiences, our baseball, our football, all the that that we were doing, and just really enjoyed the farm life. Got to look at the field and, and see the things that were in the field rather than just see it as a field. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience.
1: Interesting, yeah. So your father was a Christadelphian. Yes, he was. Like, like my mother are. was a
0: Christadelphian. Uh, yeah. They both were converted in late teens, early twenties. Okay. So um, my grandmother and my grandfather, and my mother's side were Christadelphians and my grandmother and my father's side was a Christadelphian, but they were, well, my father's side late in her life. But I lived with them for a while and I, I learned the benefit of older people living with my grandparents when I was going to university and I had to work term and I used to stay at their house. So that was kind of beneficial, too. And, uh, for instance, they talked to me about what happened in 1948 when Israel became a state and how they were glued to the radio and what it meant to them and uh, how life had changed because of that. Well, I would never have known that. I had not talked to older people about it.
1: Right. You were six at the time.
0: Yeah, I was young, and when I went to school— they then told me more about it because I was more interested then in finding out, so I had more questions to ask them.
1: Yeah, so things like that, experiencing the fulfillment of prophecy in 1948 when Israel was made a nation again is yeah. one of those experiences is very important to yeah. pass on to the yeah. later generations.
0: So I guess life went on there, but being in isolation we had to have our church services or as our our ecclesial services as we say we had to have them alone because there wasn't anybody else around my uh, siblings and i were baptized fairly early but not too early i was 15 and i think they were maybe 16 and um my dad wasn't educated well enough to read
1: well he I, couldn't read he was a little I illiterate
0: never, ever sat down and did the readings with my dad where my dad read. Oh, My dad never read from the platform at the ecclesia, never, ever gave a talk from the platform. But if you talked to him after the service, he'd talk about anything to you. So he didn't ever have any confidence in his ability. He had to leave school by never finishing public school because his parents couldn't feed him in the depression years. Oh, okay. And so he had to leave home, and so did his brothers. And they went all across the country just trying to find a job and find to find something to eat. Wow. And uh, they were very difficult years, and it influenced us greatly because when Dad came home... He knew what it was like to be hungry. You never left anything on your plate. <laughs> and some of the things that you would today for sure, because you really can't eat those things, we had to swallow them. That <laughs> <laughs> grew extreme in that sense, but I was quite prepared to accept it because he told me about what it was like to be hungry, and uh, I believed him.
1: So at some point you moved off the farm. Yeah, I, I went about to about university. That? Oh, you went to university.
0: And uh, I would never have gone to university, but Dad insisted I did because mm. he wanted me to have what he didn't get. So University of Waterloo is where I started. And I started with Jack Robinson. So you might know Jack Robinson. I do. He was statistics. Yes, he was. You studied math or the same uh, thing? No, I, I studied mechanical engineering and he studied oh. chemical engineering. That's oh, okay. That's the way we went through it. <laughs> Right. The University of Waterloo was only one building at that stage. It was just a field with a building in the middle of it. You go there now, you get lost. Yeah. But so what year was that? It was nineteen fifty nine when okay. I first went there. Yeah. And we graduated in sixty four, both Jack and I. Right. And um Dorothy started to come to school.
1: Oh, I see. When
0: she came to university, we spent quite a bit of time together in the library and uh well it blossomed it was strange how it happened because when i graduated i had to work with messy ferguson that's a farming company yeah they wanted me was out in the field to go with machines so instead of being home i was out in california and some of the places where you can get the earliest barley harvest on the continent. So you went down there with your machines and you had to work with that machine to develop anything that you could think of for what they gave you to, to see how it worked in the field. Report back to Toronto and went to Oregon. I uh, did a lot of work in Iowa, did a lot of work in Wisconsin, in upper Michigan, uh, combining corn. Spent a lot of time there and I got totally fed up with that kind of life. Yeah, I thought traveling a lot. This, this is uh, This is not really what I want to do because I got full time in that when I graduated, so I, I never came back home for months. Oh, I was out in the field. And, Were you married by this point? No, or? I wasn't married. Okay, but I I proposed to my wife over the phone one night. Over the phone. <laughs> How <laughs> romantic! I, I was in a place called Waukegan, north of Chicago. And I had been out in the field and it was cold and it was snowy and I thought, why are the machines trying to harvest corn in the middle of, well, not in the middle, but at the start of winter because we we're having so many problems with the corn head clogging up with ice. And, uh, one night I thought, you know, I'll just see what kind of reaction I would get on this, you know, so. Oh, really? (laughs) Just kind of floated the boat. So I I thought, I can't think of a better lady than her. And I don't think she really knew what to say. (laughs) I think she'd tell you that if you talked to her about it. But anyway, uh, I did find out through later correspondence that maybe it was okay. (laughs) Oh, okay.
1: So you didn't get like a resounding yes? Oh, I didn't.
0: (laughs) I tell you, I couldn't have married a better person. Yeah. She was a Christadelphian. She had been brought up by parents that were Christadelphian. They had the same standards as our family had, and she just fitted in so well to my thoughts, and, and I fitted into her thoughts. And so we got married, and that was the beginning. Yeah. Because both of us recognized we really didn't have what we wanted. I don't mean whether she was my wife or I was her husband. I just meant by that, that we really hadn't got the kind of life that we wanted. So... We had been listening to uh, a lot of Australian speakers, and one of the things that really impressed me was the Australian speakers seemed to be more convinced of what they said. More enthusiasm, like they talked like they believed it. It intrigued Dorothy and I, and we thought, look, let's go to Australia and find out why it is. So we just walked away from our job. Uh huh. So we went to Australia, three and a half weeks by boat from Vancouver. <laughs> cost me $400 each. And what year was that? Now? That was 1966. 1966, okay. And I found out before I got out of the gate under the bridge there in Vancouver that I did not have sea legs. Oh. And uh, I spent quite a bit of my time laying flat down trying to get over the dizziness and the nausea. Yeah. But we stopped at the ports and we got a new idea that there's a world out there. She was raised on a farm. I was on a farm, and they seemed like that was the center of life. Yeah. Well, we found out, no, there's a, a much bigger center of life, <laughs> and wherever you go, you'll find it.
1: That's the thing about travel, isn't it?
0: We had the most thrilling experience of our life in Australia. Oh. We were looking for a spiritual life that we were investigating, and I tell you, Tim, we found it. We found out what was the strength of the Australian speakers. And it was the way they studied their Bible. I had never studied my Bible the way they studied it. Oh, I yeah. didn't have any desire to study it the way they studied it initially, because they said, you've got to study every word. Hmm. And very fortunately, I had a very good mentor. It was Purse Mansfield. Wow. And Brother Mansfield, when I came to his place, he took me under wing and he says, okay, if you came over for those reasons, I'm going to tell you what to do. And he said, I want you to get a wide margin Bible. So we got the wide margin Bible, and he gave me pens. They were all quill pens. (laughs) They weren't anything like what we use today. Right. And you had to be so very careful, you put a big blob on your page. Oh. (laughs) And he says, you're going to start in Haggai, and you're going to look at every word, and you're going to write down what every word means in the margin. Get busy.
1: So he introduced you to Bible marking. Purse Mansfield
0: introduced me to Bible marking.
1: And just serious... Get down to its Bible
0: study. Yeah. By the time I had marked Haggai, I had become to see the things I had missed in the reading. I had never studied it at that level, never right. thought there was any benefit. Then I thought, boy, look at what you're missing by reading English and not going into the Hebrew or not going into the Greek. And you know, all you have to do is get a concordance. It takes a long time, but I had a lot of time. Hmm. I was able to work three days a week to pay for our keep in Australia. And the other two days, by the time of the week, we just... Bible Marked, both Dorothy and I. And that's how we got started. Wow. Okay. So we stayed there for the better part of a year. And then he wouldn't be satisfied with that. He says, well, look, when you've got this, you've you got to start using it. So he signed me into Rathmine's Bible School and says, you're the speaker. And <laughs> this is what you're going to speak on. And get busy getting that organized and presented so people would know it. Yeah, And I don't know that I could say how to recommend that to other people except to say that it was a tremendous blessing for me. Both Dorothy and I today would both say that was a defining moment in our background is that trip to Australia. We never were the same after that.
1: Yeah, I'm starting to see a thread in your life, kind of some very drastic moves, uprooting of things like going from Toronto to the farm, yeah. going from Canada from the farm to Australia, which is a huge move. can't think of it doing that. Both of those moments create defining times in your life.
0: They were. And if you can think, Tim, one of the things that was really moving was when I was leaving, that was 1967. Now, you just think about what was happening in 1967. This war in Israel was breaking out. Yeah. And I was giving talks on Israel. And the future of Israel and what had to happen to Israel. At the very time the 67 War was going on, it was only six days, but I just happened to be giving a series of talks at cities in Australia at that time, and the Brotherhood was just alive. The halls were packed, the emotion was tremendous. There was big charts all over the walls. There were paper clippings out of the newspaper. Everywhere you went, you saw it, and people were just thought this was it. It just pumped us up. I had never been pumped up like that before in my life. I now knew what it was like to really be pumped up about
1: something. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of energy. Yeah.
0: And how it was so important to have marked that. See, Uncle Purse had told me, before you go there, you got to have Ezekiel 33 to 39 marked up in your Bible. He didn't know anything about the 67 war occurring at that time, and I had it marked up. So when I got there, I had the study done.
1: And it was, I was able yeah. to
0: use that. And I found the power of that in presentation. It was just immense. You've done your study. You've looked at those words. Where is Gog? Where is Rosh? Where is Meshach and Tubal? Like for a person who had never done that study, you would never have the confidence. So you can see why I say it was a very moving time. I've never had a time like it in my life since. It's the most remarkable time. When we came back, Martha was born.
1: You made a decision, though, to come back. You weren't going to stay there. Martha was on the way. She was on the way. So you started having a family and you decided to go back yeah. to Canada. And one
0: of the things that also really impressed me, I said, you know, there were so many lovely young people about our age that were really also totally with it and doing a lot of work and speaking in the park in Australia. That was Elder Park in Adelaide. And I thought, they don't need me here. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah. They need me in Canada. Yeah. I'm going back to Canada. Right. So what Peirce did is he arranged for me to speak in about six or seven ecclesias across Canada on my way back. Oh, really? There were several of the ecclesias that I was able to say something meaningful because of my study, and I saw the power of that. And these were the things now that were bearing fruit that uh, I would never have thought that when we went that would ever come back that way, but that's the way. And so when we come back, we were so excited about Bible study. We're trying to get everybody to buy a new Bible. And there was a great resistance to it. Hmm. We did not find success in trying to convey that to our contemporaries. So we had to back off, get into a lower gear, and start a different way. And we did. Just the hype of the events in 67 did taper off.
1: So getting back to... Ron, and yourself, you're back in Toronto. You're trying to infuse this kind of energy and enthusiasm for the truth from Australia back into Canada. You said you had to go about it a different way. What were you doing at that time?
0: Well, Ron was the one that started it off. There was nothing called a study day at that time in any ecclesia I knew in our area. Mm -hmm. But he developed these study days with his charts— and with a set of notes and with a lot of people working for him, we started off with a Cosburn Avenue in Toronto. So people just traveled all over the place to come to there that wanted to. And it wasn't a huge thing because people didn't really know what a study day was. Really? Okay. <laughs> so that's where a study day started. That grew and it took off, and it, I would say still fairly alive and well. And then we went to Allen Gardens, and uh, that's where another side of it started up.
1: You've told me about that before. So in downtown Toronto, there's this place called Allen Gardens. Yes. And back in the day, used to be a lot of people there going with their soapbox. I guess is the term, and yes. and preaching, like talking about all sorts of different subjects, yeah. and so. Ron, was he the dynamo really kind of driving that? Ron was the
0: dynamo for sure. I I reluctantly went with him. And I'll tell you why. Allen Gardens was a city block in Toronto, downtown in the rough part of Toronto. There was four churches on the various sides of it. And uh, the city had a permit. You could pick up a permit. So from 3 to 5 in the afternoon on a Sunday, you could speak As long as, you know, it wasn't stirring up the people to fight because there were fights in that place. It was, uh, oh oh, yeah, you had to be careful what you said. (laughs) But Ron had a way of dealing with it because he had spent some time in Guyana. Right. And I think actually it was a couple of years he spent in Guyana. But he came back benefiting from what they did at night by speaking when there was nothing much else to do. They went down to the sort of what they call a marketplace. This is in Guyana. In Guyana. And he learned how to speak. So when he came down in gardens, he, he knew how to, to sort of get a crowd. But the way he did it, I don't know of a single other brother, including myself, that would ever do what he did. So you can imagine this. You go into this park. There's a lot of people in this park. Initially, there was a lot. I mean, there'd be hundreds of people in the park. And there would be several areas where there'd be a speaker in the middle of them sitting on his box. So Ron would go up to one of those, and he'd wait till the person said something that he thought he could ask a good question about. So he said, oh, sir, I, I, I've i got a question. You Could you answer my question? And, you know, yeah, sure, we answer questions here. So then he had asked him something about what he said compared to what the Bible said, you see, and uh, Ron knew where he was going to go, but the pastor didn't have any idea initially of what, what he was up to. So uh, he got to a point where he said, look, I didn't come down here to debate with you. Why don't you go and start your own crowd somewhere else? So what Ron would say to the audience is, okay, you've heard him say he can't answer my question. He told me to go away. If you want to know the answer to my question, come with me. And that's how he'd start. (laughs) (laughs) You can see why there wouldn't be too many other people that would actually go with him. But I stayed with Ron because he was my brother. Right.
1: (laughs) It's just those kind of experiences that really kind of hone you. I I know Ron, through all that, probably developed his book, Rested Scripture. He certainly did. And which was a big influence in my upbringing and still is today. And a lot of people refer to that book. You put a link to it in the show notes. So, yeah. how do you look back on that time?
0: Well, I tell you, Tim, I honestly tell you that I had never seen the truth shine like it did in Allen Gardens. Mm. Because when people went down there understanding, no, the Trinity can't explain what the Bible says about God and Jesus Christ, it has to introduce terms that aren't there that you could present a case which people had never really thought about. And when they did think about it, they couldn't buy into what they were being taught in their churches. And I found if someone's got a better argument than we got, I'm out in the public, say it. Yeah. And we found occasionally that people would ask me a question I couldn't answer. And uh, Ron told me, well, tell you what you got to do. Go back next week with the answer. Yeah. And that worked. You went back, boy, and you studied like you had never studied before. You got that person's question. You said, I got to find an answer to that. And when you went back, you answered the question. So we learned, if you can't answer a question, tell people I can't answer the question. But just give me a chance. I'll find an answer for you. And that worked very well. And people found it very satisfying that the Christadelphian interpretation of prophecy, of doctrine, and of the way of life really was based on the Bible. Other ones, no, I don't think they were. They were based on what the pastor was saying and what he understood about it. Yeah. So that was very, very, very defining in our life as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I know you got into even other preaching methods. I think early on you were doing radio shows and you got into some TV. and TV, <laughs> This is back in the
0: 70s, right? Yeah. TV in the 70s had cable TV. And Peter Robinson and I teamed up on a show, a half-hour show, in Waterloo, or actually, it was in probably in Kitchener. It was very near Waterloo, anyway. It gave us the chance to speak what we had to say for 15 minutes, and then answer questions on the telephone for 15 minutes. Well,
1: people would call in.
0: They'd call in nice. based on what we said. They'd ask questions. You see, so yeah, we thoroughly enjoyed it. But cable TV is not the professional background of other TV. So the cameramen showed up with 30 seconds before it started and things like that. When what? people ask a question and wouldn't stop asking or wouldn't stop in their response or were using foul language, they wouldn't stop them. They wouldn't intervene. I had oh. no cut off. There's nothing I could do. There were people who <laughs> were crying on there and oh. Peter would look at me and I'd look at him. <laughs> we, we just had to endure it. But anyway, that led to the series that we produced in Barrie. That was, I think, 26 TV programs. And then there were other TV uh, occurrences too. We Actually, Dave and a couple down in California.
1: This is your Bible programs. Yeah, i yeah. involved
0: in that a little bit. Yeah. A lot of
1: these are now on YouTube, so they're, they're available. Yeah. It's still great yeah, to watch are. and a lot of good subject material. Yeah. So it's going way back to the 70s and now we're 2022. You know, it's a lot of years. And do you have any sort of... Bible tips or favorite studies that you've ever done. I know I always appreciate your your insights and especially when I give talks, you challenge me. And throughout the years, is there any like essential kind of stuff that you've found to be helpful?
0: One of the things I learned is to do a study, a Bible study every year, a new one every okay. year. Okay. And without really having any more input than just what do I really want to study? But just maybe doing the readings. We made it something that we had to do as the readings every night. And we did that throughout the time we were raising our children, to do the readings. And the readings themselves, as you're doing it, sometimes propose ideas to your mind. I think that would be a good study. Yeah. And that's what's driven me. Like Just to give you an example, one of the themes was wait on the Lord or wait on Yahweh. Right. Now, that's not obvious to the mind of what that really means. What does it mean to wait on Yahweh? So I thought, well, let's do a little study of that. So I would just look at every occasion where it's mentioned in the Bible, the weight on the I there's a lot of them, and see if there is some significant differences in them or other ways in which you can look at that. And I usually did find them. So I did a, another set on follow me, just the, the number of times Jesus said, follow me. And I thought, that would be an interesting thing. Just so you up.
1: just picked up these kind of little phrases as yeah. you're doing your daily Bible readings. Yes. And you just think, oh,
0: here it is again. Yeah. Maybe I should look and find all these and just do a study on yes. them. Yes. That's what has appealed to me. And I must say that I've found it very helpful. Another one with a little bit different origin was a talk on covetousness. Hmm. I thought, this is a very covetous age, but I have never heard many talks about covetousness. Covetousness is a sin which will keep people out of the kingdom of God. Yeah, And since the economy of the world is based on spending, and people measure their success in a year by how much money people have spent at their institution, I thought, maybe we need to have a talk on that. Well, I found that just fascinating to go into this idea of covetousness. Because here you see, you're looking at a lot of different words, in one, you have to see where the idea is in Scripture, not necessarily by linked by words, but linked by ideas. And that's where the Bible readings and a notepad to note it in the pad is so valuable that you can go back and you can see these things and you can pick them up later on. I think that's what's intrigued me about your subjects, because
1: I said, how did he come at that? One that impressed me was you did a series of talks on conscience. Yes. And I'd never heard a Bible study on conscience before, but as soon as you did that study, it was all over the place, just examples and things yep. to think about. It's an interesting insight into yep. <laughs> how you pick up these things. You just It almost seems like you leave no word for granted. Yes. It could become a subject matter in itself.
0: But you see, that came from way back in 66, studying with Peirce, who said every word. Yeah, I said, well, how do you ever expect me to study every word? Well, you got the time. What's the matter with you? Now well, you got a concordance. <laughs> Get down there and study them. Sure enough, after doing that, I found out what his strength was, because that's what he had been doing. And yeah. you just see it flowing through his work.
1: That's a really powerful lesson to the younger generation, is just how important Bible study is. Yes. How powerful it is, and how much really time and effort it takes from a, a daily effort. Yeah. I want to ask you one thing. Your brother, Ron, sounds like you were very close together, even from the farm life, even when you came back and preaching and those kind of things in life. He died suddenly. Yes, he did. At a very young age. I think he was in his 40s? 43. 43. He was a big influence for a lot of people in that area. And it was, I think, one of those moments in life, I, I didn't experience it, but just talking to other people, it was a real
0: shock to their system,
1: but I've never talked to you about it. How How did that affect you? And-
0: well, yes, it was a <clears throat> very a traumatic event. Ron had no history of heart problems, never complained of heart problems, was as active as anybody running around all the time playing this and that and the other, so it was uh, totally out of the blue that this happened. Because uh, we were sitting around doing our readings to the farmhouse. But that night, two men came to our door. And uh, they just wanted to know who I was. And they said, well, we have some bad news for you that your brother died. Mm. Well, he was on a school excursion because he was a vice principal. And he used to take the children out on these excursions. And in this particular one, they were playing floor hockey. Oh. And he was out with them, playing floor. He he did that. He loved to play with the students. So the students loved him because he would play with them. He'd go out there and play ball with them and things like that. Apparently, from what they said, he just sat down on the bench and fell over dead. Uh Then I had to go and tell my dad. I had to go and tell Mary. And uh, they went with me to tell Mary because that was a very delicate Oh, you had to tell his wife. Yeah. No, I found it. Very, very hard to get over because Ron was uh, the closest person I had to me at that time. We'd discuss anything. We'd go up and have a chat and talk things over and see what he thought. And he'd come down and talk with me and see what I thought. And we'd sort of, Mm. you know, work on it. He had five children at that time. Yeah, The youngest was, I think, a month old. Yeah. But uh, we could never explain it, Tim. In the ecclesia, there were brethren— one after another, who trying to come to grips with why would this happen to Ron? Because we had known him as pretty well the number one student in our area, and he was helping and he was leading the area. And all. Why would God allow something like that to happen? Well, there was a couple of people that left the truth over that. Like they decided, look, if this is the way God deals with a righteous man, why try? Oh. You see, and they couldn't go any further than that. But there was one thing that Ron said to me that really helped me understand this. It might seem cold and callous and all that, but it filled a gap for me. Ron was a tree farmer. He lived on a farm. He had planted a lot of trees. And we go into the bush and see him. He used to love going into the bush and cutting trees down and doing this and that and the other. He had a lot of cedar trees. And he'd cut out these big trees and there were beautiful-looking trees. They weren't dead. They were lovely trees, and he'd cut them out. And he said, "Well, what are you doing that for? Why would you cut out the biggest and beautiful trees like that?" He says, "If I don't cut these trees out, the little ones don't get a chance to grow." <laughs> yeah. I'll see you how you. Are. I don't have to speak to you any further. You see the <laughs> connection right away. Yeah. That was the only thing that made sense to me. That God says, "Look, the other people have got to grow here. It's not healthy to have an environment where one person." is doing it all. He's leading everybody. I could accept it. That was good enough for me. I don't know if anybody else accepted it, but it was good enough for me that now mm. you've got to get off what you're doing and get busy and work. And other people have got to get out there and get busy and work where, you know, you probably hadn't thought of that before. You were just too happy and content to rest under the direction of Ron. Right. I'll be yeah. glad to discuss it with him in the kingdom. I'll tell you, that'll be a wonderful pleasure. Yeah.
1: That's pretty amazing and really helpful because I've lost some influential people in my life at a very early age and just grappling with that and trying to understand it. That's yeah. that's interesting. That's a really interesting take. And just one more question now. as At this point in, in your life, it's a real encouragement for other people, I think, to see that through the years you've remained faithful. Do you have any tips for enduring to the end? How do we... Make sure that we stay faithful, that we run the race that is set before us, that we endure unto the end.
0: One of the things I find when you get old is you got to face the fact you can't hear as well. You can't see as well. If it hadn't been a gain for intervention, I would be blind now because I have had both of my retinas have become detached. If those retinas had not been able to go back on properly, I would not be seeing anything, and I can't hear much. And it told me, are you prepared to be blind? And I said, no. But after thinking about it, I thought, I've got to get prepared for being blind, because look at Isaac. He may have been blind for 60 years of his life, 60 years. So be prepared for blindness. Well, how do you prepare for blindness? Memorize the Scripture. And that's got me into mnemonics, and that is to develop memory words. So take a subject, analyze it, get the critical verses, find a letter that allows you to pronounce a word that describes that, memorize it. And I found that with mnemonics, if you memorize them, you'll never forget them. So when I'm blind, I hope to be able to recite maybe about 20 different scriptures that I've memorized, Psalms and various parts that I've memorized and uh, a number of words which allow me to look at subject areas that i have i have memorized so i have spent a lot of time memorizing scripture and i'm probably better at it now at 80 than i've ever been in my life interesting
1: that's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people being able to memorize
0: but i think you got to ask for it passionately
1: but you think it's an essential part of your life well, and just staying in tune
0: what made it essential was something I did back in Allen Gardens. In Allen Gardens, you never knew what topic you're going to speak on. So I would say, if I got to talk on the devil, I, I think I got the word, haemocyclessa. doesn't make any sense to anybody. It's a nonsense word, but I can pronounce it. If I can pronounce it, well, I have to be able to spell it to pronounce it. So I have to know what those letters are. Those letters each stand for a different verse, and when I got the verse, I don't have to have a total memory of it, but I can recall the subject area. So I have something like that. That got me through Allen Gardens. If Ron said, Hey, this expert's gonna speak on the devil, <laughs> I had something to say. What word was that? Hamel <laughs> cyclesa. And I have it. <laughs> you so didn't marked. say that, but nobody would understand you. But- I just found that fantastic strategy for me in Allen Gardens. Well, now it's a strategy for me in old age. Because if I forget it, I'm not lonely because i got all these things. I try to keep abreast on these things as I uh, keep living so that I am prepared for what tomorrow might bring. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else you might want to say? Well, one of the ones that I thought maybe would be a concluding verse in Psalm 27. And it says in the concluding verse, Wait on Yahweh. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say on Yahweh. I can't think of better advice. Don't jump out there and take the initiative without God showing you.
1: Well, Frank, I really appreciate your time, sharing your perspectives on life. I've learned some things here myself. And uh, so I really appreciate you spending the time with us
0: Thank you, Tim, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to do it. I feel like I've <laughs> I've been lost in in my past in the last few minutes just going through this, but it it is good to remember, and I'd like my grandchildren to know as much as they could about it because it's such a different world today than it was in my day, and they've got to be able to span that and understand that things have changed. And the fact that they're changing so fast just meets that statement in Daniel where it says the time will come when knowledge will increase and men will run to and fro. Well, there's never been a time like this. Never. We're living in the very end. Hold on.
1: Well, my fellow Bible geeks, this is the end of episode 50 and the end of our fourth season. Thank you so much for listening. Lord willing, we'll be back next year if the Lord remains away. If this is the first time you've been listening to the podcast, then why not get caught up on past seasons or revisit some of your favorite episodes? The Essential Bible Studies podcast is brought to you by the book road Christadelphian Ecclesia located in Ancaster, Ontario, Canada. Until next time, my dear friends, may God help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.